Well, the talk tonight is about um, freedom and forgiveness and joy and doubt. <laughs> I'm trying to cover <laughs> a few last minute details. <laughs> So we get ourselves born into this human world, which is uh, this very unpredictable, uncontrollable uh, stream of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. And um, this uncertainty that we're born into, this unpredictability, uh, the Buddha called dukkha. If we um, develop enough spiritual skills, the skills of mindfulness, the skills, the four Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity, uh, we're able to, at times, let go of control, meaning what? So what we're we're saying in this uh, practice is that whenever there's a temporary moment of aversion or moments, temporary moments of fear, temporary moments of aversion, temporary moments of attachment to pleasure, pushing away pain, that that's controlling. Whenever we're caught in wanting something to be happening that isn't in the present moment, the reason we suffer is because we're not in the present, yeah? There's a separate I, separate from what's true, that's controlling, that's temporary. We're caught in it, lost. The spiritual skill is learning how to be connected with the moment, the present moment, be really here connected, but also not identified, not caught, detached. So we learn that we can flow with the stream of life. We can jump into the unknown stream of life at any point in time. At any point in time, you can recover from being identified with controlling, with aversion, attachment, and jump back. This is the great metaphor of the mother cow with the newborn calf. It's like bringing your attention together again. You come back together again with what's happening in the present moment. Coming together, coming together, coming together. So freedom is the ability to know that at times we're going to lose it or we are going to get caught. And do we have the the strength and courage to begin again and begin again and begin again rather than to judge life, to judge ourselves, to judge the whatever it is mercilessly uh, and not want to bother not to do it. So I don't think that it is that we don't love freedom. I don't think we're afraid of freedom. I think we get identified with controlling. We love freedom. We love this journey into the unknown. Humans love this. But, you know, we're afraid of the fear You know, we're afraid of the aversion. We're afraid of the wanting because we haven't learned the skill. That's all it is. Look closely. Don't take my word for it. Do you love freedom or not? And what is it that kicks in that makes us, you know, identify to be a separate self, to lose it again and again? It's a very important investigation. Are we afraid of freedom? Do we love it? What are we really afraid of? What is a separate self? Well, what I'm saying is the separate self is the moment when we try to control life. That's all. It's just that it's that feeble attempt on our part to control. And that's what, that's what the Buddha called suffering. 
So the Buddha didn't teach to try to get rid of pain and pleasure. We're not trying to get rid of pleasure. Good news, folks. You know, we're not trying to get rid of pain. We're trying to learn how to work with that it's changing. And that this change is truly, mostly out of our control. This time of year, um, I'm always grateful for whoever the gardener was originally here that put in the peonies uh, around this building. And uh, a gardener was here when this place was a novitiate um, with the Catholic Church. And I think that it's very easy for us to judge where we are on our spiritual journey. And on retreat, I think it's easy for us to compare with other people, depending on what's happening in our practice. So if it's going well, we're often thinking that we're the best yogi, you know, or you know, we're special somehow, or we're wanting to be the best or the special. Uh, and other times we think we're the worst, you know, we're, you know, we're not getting it, we'll never get it. You know, we hate ourselves. There's this range of comparison and inflation and deflation depending on what's going on in our practice. And I think that if you ever get caught, it's so useful to go out and look at the peonies. And you can see they're all in different stages, the buds. And right now there's just these buds that have one little petal that's starting to open, and then some are open and so lush they're falling over. Um, we all go through these stages over and over. So once we open and we have this great opening, that's not the end, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, we'll open. And, you know, the stream of life will go on and something unpleasant or something pleasant will happen. We won't be mindful of it. We'll close again. And it's very important to be okay with that, that it's okay to close. It's okay to tighten. <laughs> it has to be or we're going to be miserable. <laughs> you know, it's just, just that's sort of the beginning of practice is starting to accept that that's what we do as humans. And if we can start being mindful of that layer of reality, of wanting, not wanting, and to allow that experience and not judge it, we're in the present moment. And so much of the time when the wanting appears, we're wanting to get rid of it, rather than just go, oh, this is what's happening in the moment, and learn to connect with it, experience it, or fear, or whatever to care about the controller, the one that's so afraid of life as it is, that, that, that we control. So opening to this vast range of joy and sorrow in this world and learning to be free in it is the spiritual journey. Recently, I was teaching a retreat in California, and afterwards an old friend of mine um, wanted to go for a walk before I took off for the airport. And it was kind of tight. You know, I knew it was going to (laughs) be maybe a really good experience followed by some chaos. Um, But I jumped and went. And we had this wonderful hike. It had been raining the whole time. Actually, I came from Massachusetts for March and April where it was snowing almost the whole time I was here and then went to California. It rained the whole time I was there. And she wanted to go to the ocean. And I said, well, maybe maybe we should find a waterfall or something. You know, it must be really flowing right now considering it's been raining the whole time I was here. So we found this waterfall and we, we just kind of ambled off this path. And it, it was like we fell into fairyland. You know, these rare moments in time, it was just like nobody was around and it was just mossy and it was like all the devas were there playing. You could kind of feel them and hear them. Uh, And this friend of mine had been having a real busy time 
uh, tired, exhausted. And she just laid down and went to sleep. And I sat by this um, stream. And it, it was just one of those extraordinary, wonderful fairyland kind of experiences. But then we got back to the car, <laughs> and it was quite late, and we had to get to the airport, and she had to go back to her place and, you know, make sure her you know, partner had dinner, and it went on and on, you know. <laughs> and she was sure she knew how to get to the airport, and um, <laughs> we ended up in this, it was like a, I don't know, some sort of weird Fellini movie. We were, you know, we, she, had, she has this car that has, have you ever seen it? It has a satellite thing that tells you, you know, it, you're supposed to be able to find where you are, and she kept punching in the address. And it's, called, she, it's called Miss Never Lost. That's, it's, a, it's a computer, and, you know, it talks to you, and it says, turn right here, ding, ding, at a certain point. And she was, this is why she was so sure we were going to have no problems. And I, I kept saying, are you sure Miss Never Lost, <laughs> you know, knows what she's doing? We ended up, I don't, yeah, I can't tell you where we ended I mean, it was just as much as we fell into fairyland, we fell into this nightmare <laughs> F- Fellini movie for, oh, it was horrible. I mean, <laughs> I ended up staying at an airport hotel that night and missing my flight. Um, but it was, you know, it was great. And and then it was so awful, you know, these experiences. Um, and have you had those experiences here? <laughs> you know, we have this beautiful sitting. We finally, it finally comes together. And it's so pure and we get it. And then you start feeling it slip away. You know that, you, you know you're losing it when you're holding on to it. Right? I mean, you, you, <laughs> and it's just that when you're really quiet and you're really open, usually in practice, as you start to experience this, it's like the mind screams or the heart just wails. We will. We, it's unbearable. We want that purity back. And we don't really know even why we're suffering so much. And it's like that whether it's with what you're holding on to a person or a good sitting or a good food or, you know, chocolate. You know, whatever it is we're wanting, it doesn't matter what we're wanting. What matters is we get so caught, we forget that that experience has passed. And that we forget that all we need to do in that moment is shift to being connecting with what truly is happening with ourselves in the moment, which is with the wanting. And we're okay again. It's like we're complete. We're back in the moment. It doesn't mean that that's pleasant. Wanting doesn't necessarily um, have a pleasant quality to it, although I always sense that um, if you're wanting something pleasant, it's usually a little better than when you're not wanting something painful. <laughs> you know, if you're more in a reversion type like I am, you know, we're often focusing on what's unpleasant, And I kind of am jealous of the more greedy types that focus on what's pleasant. You know, they look like they're doing better. (laughs) And people like them better. They don't usually complain. They're not so negative. You know, know, it's like they're optimistic. Uh, (laughs) It's hard being an aversion, though. So what we're hopefully learning to do in this um, process of the spiritual journey is, is uniting what seems to be paradoxical. We're uniting this ability to connect the attention, connect it with what's happening, but also be detached. And if you feel like you go out of balance a lot, you know, listen to what that is. You know, that's really hard to do. We're asking ourselves to be within the experience, intuitively, non-conceptually, to drop into the present moment so deeply that we're really there, we're not in concept, we're not caught in conditioning. If we're in the word breath, or if we're in the word that's a robin that I'm hearing, if we're in the word, we're not in the experience. We're asking ourselves to drop into the moment without concept, connect, that takes courage. 
because each moment is truly new. So if you're really willing to let go of the past, really connect, and then also not take it personally. Yeah? You know, so like what I was talking about at the first talk I gave about concentration, we often get pieces of concentration. We might go fully, deeply into the experience. We might connect and we drown. Drown meaning that we get really lost in it. We get really caught. Or we step back and we detach from the experience and it'll feel dry. You know, we've stepped too far back. We're not connected. We're indifferent. The heart closes off. However this happens, it's okay. It's like wherever we are in it. This takes, you know, it's like ultimately it's helpful not to feel like it has to be this peak experience of connection, detachment, and pure balance. Sometimes we'll, we'll step back and the heart will be disconnected. Great. That's okay. That's what's happening in the present moment. It's not personal. We don't have to go, it should be better. It's not good enough. Oh, I went in and I got lost in fear. You know, this is just how life is. This is the human condition. We might get caught in a storyline like, uh-oh, going back out into the <laughs> world and blah, blah, blah. I hope, you know, whatever we're thinking about, we get caught in fear of the future. I wonder if you're staying on. I wonder who's coming. You know, I mean, <laughs> we're losing our friends here. And then these, you know, I call, we, we call them the barbarians. The barbarians come because, you know... <laughs> that actually comes from a, a story... Um, when Sayadaw Upandita first came to this uh, country in 84 and came to do a three-month retreat here, only 20 of us were here for two and a half months. Just imagine 20 people with Sayadaw for two and a half months. And then they let in 80 people. And it wasn't me. I don't even remember knowing they were coming. You know, it was like... <laughs> and I was incredibly quiet. And it was so intense. It was, it was just overwhelmed me so much that I went down to the boiler room all day. Like, I just couldn't even come out of the cellar. And I, I knew that, you know, it was getting to be late at night, and I kind of came upstairs, and Steve left me this note on the bulletin board. It was really little, and it said, The barbarians are here. <laughs> And it just helped give me that perspective, like, oh, that's what's going on, you know. I couldn't even tell what had happened, you know. Um, so what happens is that, you know, we're quiet, and we don't know we're quiet. And then these people come in, and they slam doors, and they're moving fast. And, you know, you think somebody here slams a door. <laughs> well, it's very different when people come right off the street in here. And it takes a day or two to settle in and try to have patience. And it's if you're leaving, it's hard to leave. You know, we're ambivalent. We want to leave, but we don't want to leave. If we're staying, we want to stay, but we don't want to stay. You know, we're jealous of the people leaving, and we're sad for them. It's We have all this. This is human. If it, was a, it would be so easy if we were so simple, but we have this range of feeling of pleasant and unpleasant. We hold on to the pleasant. We don't want the unpleasant. I have another um, great niece story, the one that's four years old. Um, and the one that she's gotten quite attached to me in some ways because we have so much fun and we're so similar. I mentioned this if you haven't heard about this niece, but in terms of our family, um, I'm sort of the only one in the family that's even remotely kind of like her. So when I show up, she's really excited and she gets what we call, you know, the experience that seems so much like empathetic joy but isn't, is over-exuberance. 
You know when you, you know the you feel like you're just getting higher and higher and the balloon's getting bigger and bigger and you know it's going to pop, right? Well, this is what happens with both of us. You know, we start playing and it gets bigger and bigger and she gets more and more attached. Um, so it was my niece's 40th birthday party and this friend of mine came with me down there uh, to attend to this. And my great-niece saw this person and didn't like this person at all. You know, it was like a threat, right? So we were all hanging out in this living room after this party, and this person was lying on the floor, minding his own business, watching television. And the rest of my family were, I think they were watching the 101 Dalmatians or something. Uh, And my great-niece looked like she was behaving herself, and she must have been planning this. I know she had to have been planning this. So we were sort of playing, and all of a sudden, she went over to this person and stepped on his head, like, (laughs) whoa, like, really bad, you know, just, um, it it was bad. Um, and he just went, whoa, ouch. And he looked at me and he said, I told you she didn't like me. (laughs) He said, I think she hates me. And my family was mortified. Like, this is not what, you know, you just don't do this. So everybody jumped on her. It was like, you know, you don't hate him. You love him. You know, you tell him, you you know this, tell him you're sorry and you don't hate him, you love him. And she's like, So she did it. You know, she lied. She apologized. You know, she said she loved him, and she comes over into my lap completely confused, just completely confused. <laughs> but she's pretty um, strong-spirited, so she whispered in my ear. She said, but I, I really hate him. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she said, I really, really hate him. <laughs> So I kind of took her aside and I said, you know, that's okay. You know, and can you imagine having that? You know, I just felt happy for her, you know, that I could say, it's okay, but you can't step on his head, you know. (laughs) You know, there's a difference between, you know, not liking somebody and hurting somebody. And she, she could listen to that because I let her hate him. And just, just think of how we're conditioned so young to hide from ourselves how we're feeling. So when I say freedom is allowing the controlling at first, the controlling is allowing ourselves not to like something. It's want, allowing ourselves to want something. This is how we melt the ice and get out of that locked heart. There's layers and layers of armor from being told how to be, to the point that we don't even know who we are. When I was um, entered first grade, you know, I don't know if you remember it, but it was pretty scary for me going to first grade, and... um, my teacher and uh, yeah yeah my teacher quit <laughs> the first day of school <laughs> trauma <laughs> you know and so this school they didn't have much um, income and so they put two classes together for the whole year so there were fifty kids in my first grade class and it was very intense like I remember seeing the teacher personally once or twice that year. Uh, (laughs) and you know uh, what I remember is there was this girl in that class that actually went all the way through high school with me Um, we also had in in those times there were a number of children with polio and I befriended a, a boy a young boy that year that had polio he had a leg brace and he was a good friend of mine but I was re- remembering this past retreat I just did here, um, self-retreat recently. This young girl um, was, was ostracized that first grade, and she was ostracized all through my school life. 
And I was um, having a lot of remorse for having not connected with her. And this was coming up during my retreat a lot, and it was almost like it was a part of me that was emerging that I also had split off from and had uh, shut down. And she was the type of girl, uh, you, you might not have had someone in your school like this, but she just had so much pain in her family or whatever, she would just start crying, like in class, without being able to control it. And that was like the worst thing that could possibly happen to anyone. I mean, all of us kids in the, in the school, you know, in the class would just, first of all, I know we'd all freeze and feel like, thank God, it's not me. You know, it's like, thank God I'm not the one that this is happening to. But then no one would play with her. You know, and I just looked back and I thought, oh, because this part of me started to emerge in my self-retreat, the part that just could weep and uncontrollably. Um, and it was so healing for me to remember all this and to really care about her now, you know, like wherever she is. And it's really a part of all of us that it, that just gets so lonely and doesn't have someone to connect with, and it becomes so unbearable that we cry. We have a lot of forgiveness to do, whether it's something like this, which is, this wasn't intentional on my part to cut her out, but it was certainly cruel. I participated in that. Um, and I, I know that when one comes on retreat and has the courage to really start to open, we start to see that we're really cruel to ourselves and that that's the source of that any way in which we're not kind to someone else. It's really that we've learned to be unkind to that part of ourselves. One of the reasons that we teach uh, forgiveness towards the end of a retreat, the end of a loving-kindness retreat, is because sometimes when we just, just say the words, the traditional phrases, it can bring up so much stuff for us that it's hard to kind of slip into any semblance of being able to do the loving-kindness practice, which at times is meant you know, to feel good. We're focusing on our inner goodness or we're focusing on other people's goodness. And if you do too much forgiveness, it just kind of can bring up so much, but not for everybody. So if you find that with forgiveness that you'll hear the phrases, if you connect with it, you can do it right at the beginning of a metta sitting, or right of, if you're you know, leaving tomorrow, you, know, you do it five minutes at the beginning of any sitting, or anywhere, anywhere. So the phrases are, if I have harmed anyone or any being, knowingly or unknowingly, I ask their forgiveness at this point in time as best I can. And if anyone or any being has harmed me, knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive them at this point in time as best I can. And if I have harmed myself, knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive myself at this point in time as best I can. Forgiveness, you know, can be a whole, you know, book. It's a a whole talk in and of itself. Um, And you can feel the power of these phrases, knowing the truth of them, knowing how important it is um, to forgive. And what, what I have learned over the years of this practice is that usually when we're hurt or hurt, um, we've lost touch with the original love. And often it's... It's like when when someone asked the the other morning in the hall about how you know a dear friend or a friend can become a difficult person that people shift categories 
um, so easily, you can see that it's often the people that we're the closest to or have been the closest to that switch the categories the easiest. You know, it's such a teaching to do this practice and pick a friend and then have them become the difficult person within seconds. You know, and it's usually, um, you know, it's just I was remembering, I I was uh, sending metta just this morning to my niece, the middle niece, um, and she's usually like this kind of rock of equanimity, and she's starting to crack a bit. And you usually don't see her show any signs of any negativity. And the morning after the party, um, <laughs> I let their dog out, which I didn't know they didn't let their dog out free. And it was winter, right? And it was a warm day, one of these. And I let the dog out, and the dog wouldn't come back. And she was so upset, and she was trying not to show it. <laughs> but she just you know, started to show that she was upset, which I was happy for her for. But when I was doing metta this morning, that feeling of like, oh, she was angry. Mm. You know, you know that feeling where you have that twinge and it's not even, it's not like they're the really difficult person, but suddenly there's that aversion to that aversion. And we close. That was very mild. That was easy to break the barrier with. But when we feel betrayed by someone who we trusted, you know, they go way over into difficult person for this lifetime. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, and they're they're a great teacher for us. How does that happen? And for me, with the most difficult people, when forgiveness happens, it's an epiphany because I'm in touch with that original love. And it feels so wonderful. And with, with really difficult people, I really had to learn that that wasn't the end. It was like I thought that the first time I forgave someone that really hurt me, that that was forever. But then more, more anger came up after that. And I was like, I thought that um, meant that the original forgiveness didn't mean anything. But that's not true. It doesn't mean that the forgiveness that you experienced wasn't good enough. It was actually really great, and it's purifying. It makes space for whatever's there to surface. So it it can be a process. Forgiveness is a process if we've been really hurt. And it takes a lot of patience. I learned the most about this from a um, man that came on NPR one day when I was driving. Uh, He was um, a Native American man from the Navajo Nation who'd been in World War II, and he was tortured. Uh, And he described um, being nailed to this floor and he said, this, this is an incredible story, and it's very inspiring. Don't worry, it's not going to be gory. Um, he said that it was harder to forgive the man who did that to him than to go through that experience. Isn't that clear? I mean, I, I just, it was like so pure and so powerful, it was like, that's why it's so hard for us. Because it's harder to actually open, it's harder to forgive when we've been that hurt than to actually be that hurt. And when we understand that, it gives us courage. You know, we can be so hard on ourselves. We think that we should be able to forgive, that it should be easy, you know, what's wrong with us. But actually, when we hear a story like that, and we get, oh, you know, and when I heard him, he'd done it. He did it. And it was so inspiring. And he just, he did, this did not come easy. This took this man from World War II till a couple years ago to do. This wasn't like he just did it. But you could feel the freedom in his voice and, and the love and that he had he had um, he'd gone through it.
metta, loving kindness, um, a lot of it is patience, acceptance. You know, it's accepting that we're not perfect. It's accepting the pace at which we're going in our spiritual journey. And it's accepting and being patient with others and others' um, pace at the spiritual journey. It's really remembering the tightly closed buds and the open flowers. And when we can see when we're ahead of ourselves or when we're expecting others to be ahead of themselves, how much we suffer. And when we remember, it's just that over and over, it's that remembering to just begin again and be where we are. We can, we can do everything there. It's like those moments are complete. I made a, um, a mobile, mobile of shells and feathers at the end of my retreat um, after being here about two months this spring. And it was very delicate. It represented a lot of the difficulty and vulnerability uh, that I had been experiencing the last couple of years. And I had it, <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. It was just delicately balanced. Um, and I went out for a walk and then came back and I bumped into it. <laughs> I just like totally unmindful, crashed into it. It fell. And I'd put hours and hours and hours into this thing and it was just like, I couldn't believe I did it. You know, and then, you know, do we hate ourselves, you know, and get furious at ourselves? But it was very interesting what it took for me to want to repair it. It's like I just didn't want to go through the pain of redoing it and knowing it wouldn't be the same. Um, And I think we often do that with somebody we're close to or something we're close to that hurts us. or We just think we can let it go or throw it away um, and think we're, you know, we can just move on. But I think that I had the... I really worked with that this mobile like that. Like I, I spent time, it took hours and hours again to kind of, I used very delicate thread and I knew it wasn't coming together the way I had wanted it. And I really learned something from it. You know, it's just like we make mistakes, we put it back together again. It doesn't come back together the way it was. And yet it was beautiful. And it was what was. Not so easy sometimes for us to do. Easier with a mobile than a person. (laughs) Hmm. Mm. I really want to read this quotation from Thomas Merton. Um, It's about joy, over-exuberance, and then doubt self-hatred. And Thomas Merton is really good at describing his struggles in the spiritual journey. That's his great gift to us, I think, is just this incredible articulateness about the struggle on the journey. The word... You can see I haven't gotten this glasses thing together... The word poignant is taking a very prominent place in my vocabulary these days. That is because there is some power that keeps seizing my heart in its fist and ringing cries out of me. I mean the quiet kind that make themselves heard by twisting within you and beating me this way and that until I am scarcely able to reel. Day and night I am bullied by the most suspicious of joys. I spend my time wrestling with emotions that seem to be now passion, now anguish, and now the highest religious exaltation. Fortunately, I have much intellectual work, and the books are my best shock absorbers. But the absorption is not complete. It is only sublimated. The emotion is transferred to a spiritual plane, Every article in La Vie Spirituelle, every line of Job or Tobias seems to send me sky high, and I don't come down again for an hour. 
It's a terrific nuisance. But occasionally I get a little rest. Yesterday, for instance, I was able to relax practically all day in a blessed aridity in which things were once again mercifully insipid and distasteful. (laughs) What a relief to be indifferent to things after having been pushed around by a crowd of different intoxications, some of which seem to be intensely holy and some of which do not even bother to wear a disguise. It's not much fun to live the spiritual life with the spiritual equipment of the artist. Yesterday afternoon, I began to feel rather savage about the whole business. I suppose the irritation was a sign that the dry period was reaching its climax and was about to go over again into this awful battle with joy. My soul was cringing and doubling up and subconsciously getting ready for the next tidal wave. At the moment, all I had left in my heart was an abyss of self-hatred waiting for the next appalling sea. (laughs) You know, what us humans do with joy. And this is the third Brahma-vihara. It's like we have this range of joy and sorrow, and it's like we're more afraid of joy than suffering. You know, and what is that? It, it's because it leads to this over-exuberance, an attachment to the joy, and when we crash, we suffer. The opposite of this empathetic joy or appreciation of joy is jealousy. So can we appreciate the joy in ourselves and others without getting attached? You know, it's the famous line, what goes up, you know, <laughs> must go down. And it's so hard for us. So this is the, the metaphor for awakening that the Buddha gave one of them, is the flower opening. But we don't get to control what we open to. So life is a mix of pleasure and pain. If we open to joy, we open to sorrow. If we open to pleasure, we open to pain. And we do not like this bargain. When we close, we close to pleasure and pain. We close to it all. When we open, we open to it all. So what we're learning is the mindfulness, the love and kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. So we can find this freedom of connection and healthy detachment so that we can really be in this human world with this deep balance. When my father um, was in Mass General last year, right at this time, when it came close to the end, we had to um, have a palliative care doctor come in, um, the hospice people, when we decided it was time um, to take my dad off all the equipment and let him go. Um, And this was, you know, my family is, um, you know, kind of super, super dysfunctional. And it was... uh, (laughs) Hard to believe we had to all make this decision together. Uh, (laughs) I sort of felt bad for the palliative care doctor coming in uh, to deal with us. Uh, And it was very interesting because at that moment when this was all happening, a good friend of mine who actually found IMS and has been a good friend over the years was so... He wanted to come in and sit with my dad before he died. And he just happened to show up right at that time. And he was very, you know, unobtrusive. He just came in the hospital room, sat down just like this, and closed his eyes. Now, I have a mix of family, like, you know, the fundamentalist Christians, the atheists, the, you know, this, the, that, and then there's the, um, then there's the me, <laughs> the, the black sheep of the family. You know, so everybody was in the room, and this friend came in and, and sat down. And he didn't say hi. He just started sending metta to my dad, which probably looked weird to my family. Um, and it, this doctor came in, and he was the hospice doctor. And he asked us to come out, and my family all started to go out. And 
this um, man looked at this friend, looked at me, got this little gleam in his eyes, and we walked out last, and he whispered to me, um, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I said, well, I really wish you well with my family. I'll be sending you <laughs> loving kindness. <laughs> uh, so we went in, and I knew that we had to come to terms with what my family wanted to do with my dad in terms of, well, do we call in a, you know, a priest, a, a minister? Do we not? You know, and I knew if I tried to choreograph it, you know, everyone would get upset. And, so, and I knew a lot of the family wanted a preacher, and my father wouldn't have wanted that, I knew. But we had to come together as a family. You know, so I brought it up, and this man was very quiet, and he went around the room, and he listened to each person in my family. And boy, were there, it was like the uh, McCoys and the, the <laughs> what are their names? Hatfields. It was like the Hatfields and the McCoys, except there were four clans instead of two. And I was wondering how this was going to go. Um, and he listened to everybody. And then my sister just started crying. And she said, you know, I just, my father really had a lot of unbelievable physical pain at the end. I mean, he had wounds that were, open and it was horrible and she started crying she said I just he you know don't understand why anybody should have to suffer like this you know and she was just sobbing Um, and he said three words very quietly just at the right time he said he got born and it was so true it was like instead of going into blame or you know, what his life was like, or karma, or, you know, he just said he was born. And it stopped my family. It was like, when something's true, and people are really open because it's like close to a death, it goes in, and it just opened everybody to this human condition. I started the talk with, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how things will go toward the end of our lives. We got born, but we can all show up for it and come together. And eventually, even though there were people who really didn't agree with not having a priest or a minister come in, everyone agreed that my father wouldn't have wanted that. And then, you know, it was just like decided what he would want. And it was just from this man being able to listen. He listened to every person, and he made the decision. He didn't ask my family to make it. He listened. He said, this is what we'll do because this is what I hear your father would have wanted. And I could see the power of his skill of loving kindness, of mindfulness, of just being able to be there. It was such a gift to receive that. When we feel like we're doubting, you know, if doubting life or doubting ourselves or doubting the practice or whatever, usually if you reflect back, you'll see that there was something you were overwhelmed by, painful. When we get overwhelmed by pain and we're not able to open, we have doubt. And it's okay. It's like it's okay okay to close. Um, It's just to remember that that's what's happening. And often we'll have thoughts like, I don't, I can't stand it anymore, I hate this world, or, you know, it can move into worthlessness or hating ourselves or others. And what what those kind of thoughts are calling for is your attention. It's like this part of us, it's the baby cow. It's the baby cow that can't accept the pain in the world, and it's needing us to connect with the despair you know, there's sometimes despair and hopelessness are a natural response to a difficult situation. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that if we get caught in it, we suffer a lot. Um, so when you feel like you have these kind of thoughts, they're thoughts that call us to connect, to give attention to the hopelessness, to the despair. They don't need to be transformed. They don't need to be changed. 
They need to be understood. If you connect with and care about what's happening, it doesn't have to be changed. Nothing has to be changed. (laughs) It's that the attention cares and connects, and this is the change. The understanding and the care is the change, not the experience. So we give it life. It's like if you can let a breath come and go by itself, or a sound, you can let anything come and go by itself by giving it life, by experiencing it in the body or the heart, the mind, and that last little bit that's so important. We're not caught in the story about it. We just um, don't take the experience personally. And it's literally like letting a cloud pass through the sky. And this is freedom in the human world. We're letting the experiences come and go in this vast sky whatever the cloud may be, the joy and the sorrow. We don't get one without the other. If things are too hard, if they're too painful, it's really helpful to shift to something more pleasurable, to take a break. And I hope you have learned this on the retreat. You know... um, When the heart is tight or the mind is tight, it can't receive. It can't receive anything that's happening. Uh, And if you just go outside, and again, if you look at a peony or you listen to a bird or you, I mean, watch the chipmunks, which are so much fun, but whatever it is, if you just go outside and you um, open to the sunlight or something, sometimes you'll get that sense of receiving life again opening, and being able to start again. This is the power of a spiritual friend. A spiritual friend, other than nature, a good friend, will help us do that same thing. They make life bearable. They make life worth living. And this is, you know, the the Buddha was asked how much of the holy life is friendship. He said 100% of the holy life is friendship. When you see how loving-kindness starts, this practice starts with a benefactor, someone who's kind. Now, this isn't by accident. You know, it's like this is how important, whatever it is, listening to the sound of a bird, noticing a flower. And you know, you can walk by the peonies a hundred times and not see them. It's when you take the time to receive it. And it's the same with the food here. This food is so well prepared and done with such care. And you know how many times you might just be shoveling it in. And then at some point you, you receive it. This is part of the exploration when we're on retreat. It's not to judge that you've just wolfed down half the meal and not paid attention to it and beat yourself up for it. No. What you try to pay attention to is that moment when you received it and to notice how that happened and to appreciate it. Oh, I just received this. This is is an accomplishment. It's a miracle when we actually receive what's happening, connect with it. And this is joy. This is the empathetic joy. We do that with a friend. We do that with a flower. We can do that with um, people we've known a long time. And somebody can be a spiritual friend in a few moments. When I was commuting back and forth from Mass General to here last um, June, um, I started to get to know the toll booth operators on Mass Pike. And it was so weird. It's like, who would have ever known that somehow I kept ending up in the same toll booths with the same people? And they started to get to know me. And I, it was like some of my only contact during that whole month. And somebody would just say to me, how's your father? And I'd start crying, you know, because somebody was kind. And it was such a difficult time. 
And it was wonderful. It's like I consider those people spiritual friends. I might never see them again. And so any time that you're kind, you know, it's a really big thing. You never know, you know, what it is doing. But you know, when you connect, connection, you know, it means everything in this world. It's what really, truly makes it all worth living for us, this kindness. Someone asked me to um, sing a chant that I made up. I think I will. <laughs> um, this I did. I started to sing when my sister was dying recently, and um, it's. I was trying to learn the metta chant, but not the one that Dhammaruan is chanting. But it's another one that um, the Sayadaw in Burma uh, chants a lot and was taped. And I just, I just couldn't learn it. Somehow the Pali just wasn't going in my head. <laughs> and I, I needed something that was translating into English into my head at the time. So this is what I um, started to chant. So let's, um, I'll end the, the talk with this. And you'll hear that um, it has the metta, the compassion, the loving kindness, the compassion and equanimity, and empathetic joy and equanimity in it. And the equanimity is in each phrase, each stanza. Maybe we can do call and response. That would be fun. Okay. Let's do call and response. May we be happy and peaceful. And may we know things are just as they are. May we be happy and peaceful. And may we know things are just as they are. May we care about each other's suffering. And may we know Things are just as they are. May we care about each other's suffering. And may we know Things are just as they are. May we appreciate the joys in our lives. And may we know things are just as they are. May we appreciate the joys in our lives. And may we know know things are just as they are.